Hello, and welcome to Conscious Leaders, a podcast from Conscious Working with leaders and their advisors on the ever-changing world of work. I'm Gret Batchelor, your host and founder of Conscious Working. So I suffered burnout at the height of my career. And after two years going down the exhaustion funnel, I woke up to the fact that I was the director, the CEO of my own health and well-being, and I finally started to prioritize me and emerged more resilient with greater clarity on my own purpose and with a deep knowing that businesses need to do better. We are now on a mission to embed well-being into the culture of companies and into the everyday flow of work. And we do this through our leadership program called the Excel program, where we partner with C-suite and exec teams to educate them on the eight habits of a conscious leader. We also do this through Tribe, our holistic well-being membership that empowers leaders to move from burnout, and there's a lot that are going through burnout, to brilliance and beyond. And we also do this through this podcast, Conscious Leaders, where we share stories and speak with leaders who are doing things differently, not least by leading from a different place, but they're succeeding and they are succeeding and inspiring others along the way. I hope you enjoy this episode. Tune in. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe and write a review. Hello, Tribesters and our extended tribe. This is Conscious Leaders, a series with leaders talking about doing things differently and succeeding. Um, I've got a little raspy voice today. It's actually here with me because it wasn't a few days ago and I unfortunately had to reschedule this interview, but I now have the pleasure of welcoming Tiffany Dark, a longtime friend, and I'm now calling her a seeker, someone who has uncovered things and now changed her perspective on things. Um, she is a longtime journalist. And when I first met Tiff, like years and years ago, um, she was Sunday Times fashion magazine editor, and then went on to be chief, to be editor-in-chief at Harrods. Um, she's an expert when it comes to sustainable fashion and is also a store owner. We're going to hear all about her journey and a lot more. So without further ado, welcome Tiff. Hi, Gret. Hello. Thank you so much for joining. Um, I think it's good to sort of set the scene and lay the foundations on your journey. So can you give us sort of background on how you came to where you are now? Uh, well, I love this question because uh, we're talking a few weeks after my 50th birthday, which meant that I spent the last six months thinking about, oh, my God, I'm 50. And looking back and thinking, where have I come from? How did I get here? Where am I going? <laughs> Um, but I, um, I didn't really want to know, know what I wanted to do in life. I just decided that I wasn't going to do anything vocational because I didn't really want to do medicine or law, um, basically because I wasn't very good at science and wasn't that interested in law. So with not being able to think of anything else to do, I decided I would just like to do as many different things as possible. And I think my realization in this 50th year is that, um, I pretty much, followed that path. And it has been in some ways frustrating because you don't become really good at one thing. Like you notice that people really specialize, they become really, really good at one thing. But it's also great because you end up with this very broad, varied career that you are then able to diversify in ways that maybe you wouldn't if you'd stayed in one lane. Um, so I fell into journalism. Um, I was in South America, actually, teaching English to the editor of Brazil's largest national newspaper, O Globo. Um, and he inspired me to try some journalism. He gave me some work experience on the paper and I loved it. And when I came back to the UK, I blagged myself some work experience at The Observer and I was off. Um, during the 90s, it was really easy as a woman to get promoted in journalism because they had only just realized that half their readers were women and that actually they might want to make some content with a female lens. So I quickly went from the Observer to the Telegraph to the Express where I became features editor under Rosie Boycott, which was great. 
Um, she gave me 11 pages a day, which was um, a lot. <laughs> and I was doing long days um, following the kind of news agenda. Um, and my crowning glory of working at the Express was coming up with the headline, Too Posh to Push, which was when Victoria Beckham uh, had her. Well, and, 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 that, and that term is still used. Yeah, there we are. That's my legacy to the world. Great. Um, uh, then I went to the Sunday Times and I was working on the news review section when 9-11 happened, which was completely thrilling because um, there was a real lack of information and education in the world about the difference between East and West and the class of, clash of civilizations and, you know, what the Islamic world could possibly be thinking of the Western world. Um, so that was a really important and sort of academically nourishing and professionally nourishing time. Uh, and then the editor of the Sunday Times approached me and asked me if I wanted to be editor of Style magazine, to which I said no, because I was 29 and I didn't want to be pigeonholed into fashion and lifestyle. And he said, don't be ridiculous. It's a really good job. You should take it. Um, and he was right. And I stayed doing that job for about 13 or 14 years. And it was a real ride. I loved it so much. It was kind of pre-social media pre I mean you know pre um sort of weekly magazine style was the only sort of weekly fashion magazine where you could go and read all about this kind of incredibly glamorous and ridiculous world um and because we were such um uh a, you know widely read newspaper we had a uh, circulation of 1.5 million at that point advertisers were clamoring to be in our pages and we didn't really have to worry too much about what we wrote about them there's a very famous story, actually, of when Andrew Neal was the editor of the Sunday Times of um, the business section. I think it was running an, uh, an unflattering story about Giorgio Armani, <clears throat> Giorgio Armani ringing up Andrew Neal furious. And just before he could open his mouth to issue his uh, threat, Andrew Neal said, Mr. Armani, I'd just like you to know that following our conversation, I am now banning you from advertising in our newspaper. <laughs> which tells you something about the balance of power in the 90s and how it shifted. Anyway, obviously, all that changed in 2008. Um, financial crash meant that suddenly, and also it was the invention of iPads and smartphones, and suddenly everyone had access to free content and news. And the circulations of newspapers, you know, went down very quickly because um, you could get the same information and content or similar information and content from other places. Um, and so style had to learn to become more of a commercial product, which we did and maintained our advertising. And as a result, um, Rupert Murdoch asked me to form uh, an agency within News UK, making essentially content for brands that they could pay for through the Times, the Sunday Times, the Sun, the News of the World that we had then, and later the talk radio stations that were bought. Um, and um, I went from interviewing my last style issue. I interviewed Mutia Prada, which was great. I love her. Um, and then the next week I started my agency and my first piece of work was for Asda's 9.99 meat, exotic meat feast for I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And I did a piece in the sun about two puppets and the exotic, so two jungle puppets. I think it was like a, a slug and a worm or something talking about the exotic meat feast. So uh, yeah, that was a bit of a change of gear. Um, but I, you know, I actually learned so much in the three years that I ran that agency, mostly about how to be commercial. And, you know, it, during your journalistic career, you won't take advice, you won't listen to anything that brands tell you because you're trying to find the truth. You're not trying to find the press release. Um, and then when you make commercial content, you have to do exactly as the brand tells you. And you have to understand why the brand first of all you have to help the brand find the story that's going to resonate with its audience and then help the brand tell that story in a way that the audience is going to engage with it most so it's completely different skill sets actually um and you know I was doing it for instead of just fashion lifestyle as I said I was doing it for a, a whole bunch of FMCG and then actually a lot of business brands which I found really interesting I found business stories really interesting just because generally speaking successful business people are really interesting personality types um, then I was invited to go and be editor-in-chief of a cable network, TV network in the States. So I moved to New York for a couple of years and I was editor-in-chief at History Channel, Biography Channel and A&E. Um, and that was a baptism of fire with American culture, which you'll know all about, correct? 
Um, very, I know it very, very well. <laughs> well, and I arrived on the day that Trump was inaugurated. So it went into hyperdrive, which was fascinating. And um, we lived actually just on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And all of the marches in, in New York would go down that West Side Highway. Um, no, sorry, I mean, it's the- so fascinating now, not to interrupt you, but like I just listened to The Daily this morning, which was all about, you know, New York going red, potentially. And so there's been a big, big change in politics, obviously, since you've been in the U.S. Wow, that is news. I need to listen to that. Yeah, no, I mean, it was definitely blue. And and when we arrived, everyone seemed to be in a sort of state of profound shock. Um, I remember going to a poetry slam about a week after arriving, and there were all these kids who'd written these poems at the poetry slam, and they were standing up and reading them in tears. They were just, you know, there, there was grief and shock and horror all over the city. Um, gosh, New York going red, really? Yeah, I'm interested just to also just touch on because you covered 9-11 when you got to New York. I mean, obviously, you'd probably traveled there before, but just wondering your connection with New York, having covered 9-11 and then moving there. And if there was any, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, actually, my biggest connection with it was really going there for New York Fashion Week, which I went to every twice a year. Um, for for years and years and when I arrived to live and work there it was a very different place from the one I'd known as a visitor or as a fashion journalist Um, at the time I was there and I believe now there was some really palpable tensions in the women's movement in the gun violence movement and the other thing that felt very um, visceral was the um Republican Democrat divide. So, you know, it's really tribal in the States, isn't it, Gret? That yeah. you're you you are from one or the other and it defines everything that you think and feel. And in a way we don't really have with our political affiliations over here anymore. No, yeah. There's much more of a like you you sort of look at who the leader is and what they're what they're representing versus yeah. being a being a Tory or being a um liberal so yeah. yeah yeah whereas in the u.s it's very much you're you're a republican you're a democrat and you vote based on that rather than necessarily based on the person yes and you were raised one or the other and you know your friends and family are for one or the other and it sort of defines your, your whole outlook on life and um i think uh the big mistake that i made when i moved over was i thought that americans were just like us because i thought they were you know we spoke the same language I have friends who are American, but actually what I realized over the course of working there was that actually Americans are very different from English people. And I hadn't respected or understood enough about how different their thought processes are, the different triggers that they have, the different ways they like to communicate. Um, And I had to really learn that on the job. Um, And I think it's really, um, it was a real lesson to me, actually, that you can't that I had a singular cultural viewpoint, which I thought everybody would share. And suddenly I found myself operating as a leader in an environment where the cultural viewpoint was actually really different. Like there were different ways of saying things. People thought differently. Um, uh, you know, that you know, if you have a challenge, there are different ways of going about tackling it within that corporate culture. Um, and so it was a very steep learning curve actually taking that job. Can you just talk me through sort of an example of that? Because I think we're going to come on to leadership in a little bit, but since you're bringing it up, like what was one of your big, big learnings and how how did you deal with it? Mm. Um, I think the thing that felt like it was most alive when I was there was the um, equality, gender equality debate. And I remember I was appointed as editor-in-chief at the same time as another editor-in-chief for a couple of the other channels. She was an American uh, New York girl. She was amazing, Leah Goldman. And we reported into, we had actually two direct reports, but one of them was this guy. Um, And he was, uh, uh, he was black guy. And he had a team of about 25 people and we, of which we were two of them. And we walked into our first meeting. And as we walked through the door, I didn't see this. And Leah saw it immediately. But everybody sitting around the table was male. And she just turned straight to our boss, Sean, and said, ha, 
So you're doing well on the diversity stakes here, Sean, and sat down at the table. And I was like, oh my God, that's so direct. You know, this is her new boss. This is her first week. Um, and what I realized is that there is a difference in communication, which is Americans speak very, very directly. And Brit the British people don't always say what they mean. They kind of talk around it. And um, it serves you over there to speak directly. Okay, cool. Thank you for that. We're going to come back to a few questions on leadership in a bit. But so what after New York, you came back to you moved back to the UK, right? Yes. Well, actually, my uh, my other direct report over there was the CMO, Amanda Hill, who was a great mentor and guide for me. And um, she moved back to the UK um, and took the job as CMO of Harrods, which was, um, you know, she she went from basically media to retail. Um, and when she landed back, she called me up and said, oh, I need someone to come be editor-in-chief at Harrods. Do you know anyone? And I said, yeah, sure. I know loads of fashion journalists. So I sent along the sort of top editors to go and meet her. And she was like, no, 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 no. And then she ran me up and said, can't you come back and do it? And I was like, no, I can't. I just moved to the States. I got this job. And she's like, what about if you were to do it from the States? So she managed to persuade Harrods to let me be editor-in-chief of Harrods whilst living in New York. So I had this dreamy... Uh, yeah, actually, where I was flying back to London for a week a month and working from home for the other three weeks, um, which was great. <laughs> and also after doing, you know, um, cable TV, going back to fashion was felt like a walk in the park. It was very sort of it was it was easier. Um, but the, the great learning about Harrods was retail. Um, and I, again, you know, it was a more of a baptism into the commercial world. So when I'd been in the fashion world, I'd been editorial and suddenly, you know, I had to learn about how you do a buy, you know, how adjacencies about putting brands next to each other, um, you know, about kind of, you know, marketing and um, customer relationship management and this kind of thing. And I loved it. I thought it was fascinating. It was great. And I had all of these levers at my disposal because I had Harris does a ton of magazines. It does like magazines for Asia, magazines for the Middle East, magazines for food, magazine for, for interiors. Um, and it distributes them all to its um, 100,000 top spending customers. So you can imagine that's quite an interesting circulation. Um, and um, we started a podcast, True Tales of Luxury. Um, we started Internet IGTV with uh, the fashion editor I appointed, Stacey Duguid, where we basically kind of go around Harrods in the morning when the cleaners were there and none of the um, customers were in. And we'd be like, this is really good. This just landed on the floor. This is the new brand. This is where you've got to buy it. And, and it was a real success. We had like 10,000 viewers every morning within about a month. It was great. Um, and then the other really thrilling thing about Hallards was obviously the VIP bit. So the, the penthouse is where you go if you're a really top spending customer. And so we started out private um, social media feeds for that group and, and WhatsApp content and speaking to all of those, that group of customers um, and working out what they wanted and doing events for them and like private breakfasts and stuff like that. And that actually ended up standing Harrods in very good stead when COVID came, because obviously once the store was shut, and by the way, Harrods had not shut the shut store for either of the two world wars. So COVID was like, what the hell? Um, the, that relationship, the communication that we had established with that sort of private personal group of um, or more elevated group of shoppers or higher spending, if you like, um, was what kind of got them through COVID, actually. Um, yeah, so that was all super fun. But I have to say that my big revelation was that um, it was too much. The excess that I saw there, you know, people in that private penthouse apartment just buying a hundred thousand dollar hundred thousand pound watches with like a nod of their head you know people would come up and show them a tray of watches and they'd look at one and nod and then that would be it that was it that would they would bolt it and it was a hundred grand um i mean they would sell watches for a million when you know the, the the high season for harrods is the summer when all of the middle eastern customers arrive and that's when all the jewelry brands sell their tiaras and their diamond necklaces and so on and not you know, necessarily even on the shop floor right yeah like the shop floor is there to set the scene, but a lot of the business at Harrods happens 
Yeah, they go up to the penthouse. And yeah. actually, there's a, there's a place in Harrods, which is very, very secret, which is above the penthouse. And it's right at the top of the building. Um, and that's where they send the royals. And they have £20,000 lose in their grit. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm going to get. I'm going to avail myself of the facilities that which I did. It was very comfortable, Lou. I can tell you. <laughs> so then, but what actually, happened? Obviously, you've seen you've seen all this excess. You've had yeah. such a, you've had such a full career. I actually had never heard all of what you've done, and this is obviously, you know, you've you you had a lot of ammunition and a lot of training across lots of different subjects so what was the big the big turning point to move? well I mean it was like for many of us it was the COVID-19 pandemic demonstrating just how fragile our world is and how disrespectful we have been of it and yeah I mean I woke up late to that story um, but I did wake up to it and I realized that whatever I was going to do going forward, it would need to have a sustainability angle attached to it. And I knew nothing about sustainability. So I took a course um, and at Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, which I can highly recommend. Incredible tutors, incredible students. Um, I learned so much there. They say it's a part time course and you can do it around a, a, a job, but don't believe it. it you need like a minimum of two months full-time on this to do it justice um and I the scales really fell from my eyes I had an amazing education there um it was basically like a business studies course but with a sustainability lens um and it's a very hardcore course as well because you do, really do face the facts of climate change <laughs> and um, uh yeah, it's quite chilling, but they're very careful about showing you ways that you can, um, you know, you can help. And um, out of that course, um, I realized that there were the one thing that I could do is help try and make sustainable product desirable. So all through my career, I had um, practiced the art of making something desirable. So you want to buy this skirt or watch this video or tune into this TV program or read this magazine. So uh, I came up with this idea to do a sustainable luxury fashion store slash magazine um, and got together with my partner, Daniela Agnelli, who was a Vogue fashion director, very esteemed. Um, and she knew of um, a space on in Ibiza, which was actually a really good place to go because Ibiza is a very progressive um, island full of progressive people and lots of people had relocated there during the pandemic, actually. So you have very interesting um, entrepreneurs on that island. And one of them was this guy called Jonathan Leitzerdorf, who had built um, a hotel up in the north on this beautiful bay, um, Chiraca Bay. And um, he had a, a lovely, huge 200 meter square space at the top of it. And he met Daniela and I, and we talked to him about what we wanted to do. And he gave us the space, which was amazing. And he's been the most incredible, um, well, we call him the boss, but actually he's more of a, you know, he's more of a partner because he has done nothing but champion us. Um, we said to him look, we don't know anything about buying. We need to work with buyers. And he was like, no, you can do this girls. Like he, Literally, Amanda, my old boss at Harrods and also A&E, had this phrase that she used when she was encouraging me to do something, when she was encouraging me to go to the States and work for her, encouraging me to go to Harrods or encouraging me to do something brave. She said, I've got one hand around your shoulder and I've got one hand on your back. And it's such a lovely um, sort of visualisation that, you know, someone's holding you, they're looking after you, but they're also pushing you forward as well. And Jonathan's been very like that with our store Agora in Ibiza. Um, and yeah, I mean, we went into it knowing absolutely, well, we say knowing absolutely nothing, but we felt like we knew nothing, but obviously we did know, we did know a bit. Um, and then the great thing was that Daniela and I had been working in the fashion world for, you know, 20 years. So all of the people who were now the CEOs of the big fashion companies, we knew when they were like assistants. So we could just call them up. So we got straight through to the top um, and we got to pitch our idea and it was in the middle of the pandemic and retail was in free fall and no one knew what was going on. And they were like, well, this sounds interesting. So they all said yes. 
So, um, you know, gradually we've built the store and we have over 90 brands in the store now. Um, some of them are big, you know, international luxury brands that you'd know of, like Loewe and Stella McCartney and uh, Chloe. Some of them are, are small, innovative, sustainable brands that have got really interesting practices they built in from the ground up, like CDLP or SMR Days. And then some of them are little local Ibiza craft brands who, that make fantastic things and don't really export. And we were able to give them a platform. And bringing in those big luxury brands means that all brands rise with that tide. Even though they're not the most sustainable, we only let the brands in that are doing something good and are on the right journey and are progressing in the right way. And actually, Loewe, Chloe and Stella are all obviously very good examples of that. And then all the other mid-range brands, um, you know, I've got a, a huge variety of um, sustainable approaches. So the concept, so it's, it's more of a concept store, right? And it's yeah, called, I mean, called Agora. It's called Agora. And we're we're going to put all of the details so everyone can have them and be directed there. Well, you must all come to Ibiza and shop in the store. I can tell you it's yes. a great experience. Um, but actually, we... we, we we organized it around the principle of a story, which is luxury and sustainability. And we tell the story in four chapters. Those chapters are, first of all, reduce, which is obvious. We buy less, buy better. Um, we only buy product that is seasonless and timeless in its design. And we never send any product back at the end of the season because we don't believe you should do that. We don't buy for that. Yeah. Um, recycle, which is about, you know, material science, basically, or upcycling of old materials. Um, restore for us doesn't mean mending because we don't offer that service. It means preserving communities and craft groups around the world that um, have practiced their, you know, amazing arts for generations. And it, it's really about social sustainability, that chapter. Um, and we have lovely examples. We've got like Hetchosta Manos, which is a women's collective of weavers in Uruguay who can actually be sent shawls to knit um, in the campo so they don't have to migrate into towns. So they can maintain um, their, life, their, their, their livelihoods. Out. And their family and their family structure and they don't have to move. That's amazing. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, things like Master Batik dyers in Indonesia and... Um, uh i know. love that actually i love that chapter because it's a sense of like bringing things back to life bringing these i'm not going to say ancient but like these older traditions back into yes. the modern world that's and right and, and it also it goes back to this idea of being made by hand and i think you know since industrialization so much of this stuff could be made by machines and, and you know decimated big communities that suddenly didn't you know weren't needed anymore um and that you know obviously has an enormous knock-on effect on in terms of migration and um, disparity of wealth and all of those things that are putting pressure on us right now. Um, but also, you know, having something made by hand is, we all know, is an amazing experience. And, and you know, that's, a, a machine can't replicate that. It can make something perfect, but it can't make it with love. Yeah. And you feel yeah, that. and I love that point because we talk, I talk about this with um, one of our resident cooks and she's just like cooking something for someone is an act of love. And it's that same thing of making something by hand, putting it on your skin. You also can feel that, feel what love and care was put into actually producing that item. Yeah. Well, what I realized is that, you know, clothes have stories, pieces, all product has a story. And that's what gives it its intrinsic value. Um, and actually there's a really exciting development that's going on right now. Um, with the way blockchain is going to be able to identify single garments um, and you will be able to trace the sourcing of your garment right back to the very beginning like the farm where the flax was grown the, the factory where the, 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 the linen was woven into a textile um, you know the, the, the cutter the pattern cutter who made it into a piece and then as that garment goes on to be and as we know re-commerce and resale and rent now are growing sectors in the fashion industry you'll be able to see who owned it where they owned it all that all that information can be plugged into its history so when you buy a garment now it will come with this fabulous story about how it was made and that is what will give it its value I think rather than the fact that it's made by a particular brand and worn by a particular celebrity or influencer or, or made for 
45p. Right, exactly. That's incredible. Um, I don't want to skip out on the last, the the fourth concept, the fourth part. So you had reduce. Yeah, sorry. And the fourth one is rent. Is rent. Okay. Um, and this was quite hard for us to do, actually, when we first started, because we tried to persuade brands to give us their archive evening wear because we were a Ibiza. Everyone's going to a party. You can't pack too many ball gowns in your suitcase. Um, and also, you know, everyone loves to dress up in Ibiza. And we thought, brilliant, let's do a Cinderella concept where we'll transform you for the night um, and you can rent headdresses and gowns you know, wonderful things that will, you know, give you a, a, a fabulous look for the evening. And lots of brands loved the idea and then they bottled it. But interestingly, a year later, so at the beginning of this summer, the trajectory had changed so much around the way luxury brands were thinking about renting and a way the way they were thinking about sustainability as well, that actually we managed to persuade five or six brands to come in and then it was just like dominoes. And so now we have an amazing rail of evening wear um lots of it archive um which you can come and rent and we rent and it works really well in a hotel because there's questions around the sustainability of renting because of all the dry cleaning and the transport and bloody blah, blah, blah but in a hotel obviously your guests are there so they can come into the shop pick it up wear it give it back to you yes we have to dry clean it um but you know those pieces that we've got are hard hard-working pieces now because if you think about when you buy a piece of evening wear and it sits in your closet you might wear it like what 10 15 times in your whole life maximum whereas we can rent these evening wear pieces out you know 25 30 times a season um so that you know it gives it gives clothes a longer life um i actually just went to my brother's wedding and i didn't want to buy something so i was like i'm going to wear this once and um where I am, I couldn't really, I, di- I didn't want to rent something because of the transport because I borrowed something from someone mm-hmm. and it was great. It gave me joy for the night and it made me feel good about not having actually brought something else into existence. Yeah, no, I mean, sharing our wardrobe is actually one of the models of the whole rental economy. Mm-hmm. So you can put your wardrobe up online and people can rent it pretty easily now. Um, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the whole sustainability, um, uh, sustainability in fashion. So what's what's really happening now? Because obviously there is still some greenwashing. Um, a lot of brands are now waking up that they need to do something with their quote unquote dead stock. Um, what are you seeing? Um, well, I was seeing so much happening, so many interesting things, so much progress. And yes, there is a lot of stuff that is holding it up as well um that I decided that I had a whole platform in my hands so earlier this summer I launched it's not sustainable with Tiffany Dark which is my new sustainability platform and um every week I write up a story and I I'm always spoiled for choice of the things that I can talk about and it's been fascinating talking to CEOs and founders directly about what it is that they're doing now um, also looking at what large luxury brands are doing and how they're sort of um, reverse engineering sustainable practices into existing supply chains. Um, and looking at all the myriad of different ways that, that you can be sustainable in the, in the modern world. The greenwashing thing, I wrote about this recently, is very interesting. It's a complex subject. If you put too much legislation in about greenwashing, you put people off attempting to be sustainable or even to use it as a marketing tool. And if it becomes unattractive as a marketing tool, that will actually just slow everything down. We're always going to get greenwashing. The, the industry is in a moment of transition. Everybody, I mean, and actually there's going to be very good legislation coming in in the next few years, which means that all manufacturers will need to have much more sustainability built into their supply chains and their production and so on. So if there's people taking shortcuts in the meantime and using the marketing principles of uh, sustainable and impact approaches to con their consumers, you know, I hope they sleep well at night. But for the next few years, we're just going to have to live with that. 
I think you need to champion people who are on the journey, champion the journey itself and be and yes, you know, there are there are, you know, some great pieces of legislation that are in place and there are some really good prosecutions that are happening as well particularly with big fast fashion retailers. I mean, H&M's been wrapped a couple of times in the last month for claiming to have conscious garments when in fact the calculations that they were doing to prove those garments were conscious were all really very dodgy. So, you know, it, it is good to have the guardrails there, um, but we need to be careful that we don't actually overshadow the real story, which is, you know, green want of a better word clothes are, be are, are better than clothes that are not produced with any thought for the environment and people that make them so what can consumers look out for well i think yeah i mean this is the problem you need to do an awful lot of research about what brands are good and what isn't um i mean i would say you need to find the brands that you know are doing a good job and journalists should be able to tell you that um, you know, curations like we have in Agora, there's 90 brands there to start with, um, who are all worth supporting. Um, you know, there are there are sort of channels on things like Net like Net Sustain. Again, you need to kind of check what the organizing principles are for something to be sustainable as far as that platform is concerned. But actually, what you should be able, I mean, if you go to any brand website now, there's an about page, there's a sustainability page, there's an impact page. And, you know, you, you should be able to tell whether this is something that is worth your effort. Although having said that, I tried to buy a jumper recently and I wanted to buy a statement jumper and I thought it would be quite easy to buy British wool or 100% merino wool. And merino wool in New Zealand is now mostly regeneratively farmed. So that's quite a good one to support, even if it has traveled all the way from New Zealand. But also that community of sheep farmers in New Zealand has been given an extraordinary second life by the rise of the regenerative agriculture movement. Anyway, I went on to various sites, you know, everything from Cos to Arquette's to even like bigger brands and um, more luxury brands. And you really have to dig down into the fabrication to discover whether this really is 100% wool. And most of the time it isn't, it's a blend. And they've blended it with synthetics or they've blended it with a cotton, you know, and cotton as we know is really corrosive to the environment. So you really do just need to check your materials and your fabrications just before you put it in your checkout basket. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would say that that's one of the biggest things, whether it's for clothes or food or cleaning products or beauty products, like we all need to learn how to read labels, which takes a bit of time, yeah. but like get educated on what different materials are and where to look and how to, how to yeah. um, process it. That's right. And if you're really interested for clothes, I mean, something that is organically or regeneratively farmed is a good thing. Or going to brands that you, if you're really sort of, you know, hot on it, go to and support brands that are actively trying to change the course of the fashion industry. And brands I would pull out are ones like Pangaea, which is a material science company. Rapa Nui, which is a surf brand on the Isle of Wight, which has a fully circular process. Um, you know, great surfwear brands like Finisterre that from Cornwall. They're really great. Good for you in Portugal, Grat. <laughs> taking note. And we will, again, put all of your, all your recommendations. Yeah. We'll make sure they're listed. Yeah. Yeah. What, any, mean, any other top brands that you would say, these are the ones that we really champion, that you really champion right now? Well, in the luxury space, it's definitely Chloe and Gab Gabriella Hurst. So Gabriella Hurst is a New York designer I met when I was out there. And I was so impressed with how bright and educated she is. And she had, you know, been appointed an ambassador for UNICEF back in like 2012, 2013 or something. And went out to um, Africa to visit um, somewhere that had been afflicted with drought. And that was a sort of Damascene moment. And she came back realizing that climate was going to change or is changing everything, changing people's livelihood. And if she was going to be in the business of fashion, she needed it to be a kind of best in class example of what that should be. And she has done an awful lot at Gabriella Hurst to prove that. And then when she was appointed the creative director of Chloe, 
I think it was 18 months ago now, she immediately set about with this big, you know, legacy luxury brand, um, changing an awful lot of the processes um, that they had internally around how they source materials, about how they do their business and about where they place their impact and, and being quite progressive. And she's one of the people actually who is introducing this new blockchain technology that will allow you to trace the source of all of your um, product and products and garments. She's doing it with a linen collection, which is launching next season for Chloe. And there's actually, there's another great American brand called Another Tomorrow, which is only two or three years old, tiny, tiny brand, very, very chic, a bit like the row, but a little bit cheaper. Um, and they, again, they set themselves up with the, with the idea of being a best in class um, environmental fashion brand. And they, and the practices that they lobbied the government, for instance, on banning pesticides. Um, and they have, you know, been very successful in a lot of the stuff that they've done. They do take back. So once you've bought something from their site and you've worn it for a few times, you don't want to wear it anymore. You just send it back and they don't just give you credit. They give you cash. So they have created a fully circular system. They're really worth looking at. Um, and then, you know, looking at brands like, say, CDLP, which is a really cool, hot Swedish menswear brand. Um, and again, they started about four or five years ago and they use purely recycled materials. Um, and, you know, they, they uh, just because of the nature of the fact that they're new, they've been able to build in all these principles from the ground up. Amazing. Okay, we're going to make a list of all of those for everyone. I want to switch over to leadership because obviously you've occupied a few very senior roles over the past few years. Um, I'd love to know what you've learned about being a good leader and, you know, some of your your biggest takeaways from the roles that you've been in. Um, well, it's always about listening. Um, you know, the biggest mistakes that I've made is where I have been deaf and blind to what is going on around me. I mean, we've all had those awful 360 HR moments, haven't we, where you think you're a popular leader who's doing really well and, you know, creating change. And then the HR department does a 360 on you and you get all the feedback and you're like, oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> and when you say, when you say listening, or you said you're, you're sort of not listening to every, whatever, what your team is saying, you're sort of on your own agenda. Yeah. And often they're not telling you directly, they're showing you. Um, and I think I, last year, actually, I went in as a creative content director in a startup um, wellness brand and had the great joy of being able to hire a team from scratch. I had uh, like eight or nine hires I could make. And I went in with a view to saying, thinking, right, this is it. I've got a kind of, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to build a diverse and balanced team. And I hired exactly to that. Um, and I found that there are an awful lot of people who I was now managing who I didn't understand at all, who came from backgrounds and orientations that were not familiar to me. Um, and their behavior was different and their working practice was different and their communication was different. Um, and that was when I really learned to listen, actually, because I realized that everything that I thought and knew it was a bit like being in America, everything I thought I knew was wrong. Well, was, you know, not, you was know, one, one yeah, not yeah, not well informed enough. And I learned so much, I think, from doing that and from working with people who were so different from me, who had very different approaches, different approaches to it. It was just at that also at that awful phase where everyone was trying to kind of go back to an office. And, you know, there was a Gen X founder of this company who was desperate for people to get back into the office and work 15 hours a day. And all my, my, my team were like, well, we've just been working from home for the last two years. Why do we need to be in the office? And then you know, all that conflict that was going on at that particular time. And it was by the way, it's still going on now. It's one of the things that we're hearing from most of our, our clients. Like it's, yeah. it's the trickiest thing. Yeah, it is. Team and get everyone connected. Oh, we think we need to get back into the office, but then employees don't really want to be back in an office. Yeah, and I think those Gen X founder have had to kind of like sit down a bit and do a bit of listening. And, you know, they can't plow my way or the highway, um, even if it is their business, <laughs> because otherwise the churn is just too, you know, the churn of employees is too much. They're not, um, you know, aspirational places to work. 
Um, yeah, so listening always. And, you know, that's one thing. Another thing that I've learned about being 50 this year is, you know, you are always growing and evolving. And actually, that is the secret of happiness in life is embracing that. And I think I thought when I turned 40 that I was kind of done. You know, I'd have my kids. I, my career was in full swing. I got married. I had a house. You know, I was like, right, that's it. You know, I'm, I know it all now. And actually, I spent 10 years realizing that I didn't know it. And now I realize that not knowing it is the joy of it, right? So that's the that's the thing is that you have to learn that you learn that you don't know and learn that you have to you have to keep learning. And that's actually the joy, isn't it? Yeah, and that's okay. It's like surrender to it. Surrender mm. to it and you'll get so much more from it. Mm. Um, who've been your biggest influencers and mentors? Um mentor, I would like to call out um a boomer. Um, so this is a woman called, um, Julia Hughes Hallett, who was the founder of a charity called SmartWorks, who I've worked with since about 2005, actually, and I'm currently on the board there. And, um, she founded it. She founded it in about 2011, 2012, but previously she was chair of, um, a similar charity called Dress for Success, which is a, um, similar charity that's, um, more widespread in the states uh, smart works has similar principles which is you know getting women who are out of work back into work by giving them um interview appropriate outfits and um interview training it's a very simple volunteer run business model incredibly successful 70 percent success rate of getting women into jobs and these are often women who've had like 100 interviews and not got the job i mean like can you imagine how your confidence feels after that um and it's weird. It's how you how fashion can be a force for good. So I've always loved the principle behind it. But anyway, Jules was a really interesting person to work for because she always used to say that she didn't know anything. She didn't know anything about business. She didn't know anything about this and didn't know anything about that. But she had incredible emotional intelligence. And actually, she was employing hugely manipulative techniques <laughs> below the surface to get people to do what she wanted them to do, to get people to give her money to run the business to form a team that was so um, much of a joy to be part of. We were all, you know, obviously unpaid and in that team. We were volunteers. We were all women um, and we were all doing it for the love of it and for each other's company, actually. And the way that she built and ran that team is a total inspiration to me. She sadly retired a couple of years ago um, from that job, from the chair job. Um, but her her lessons live on very much with me. I love that idea of saying, I don't know, because I think we think as leaders, and I know I felt like this when I stepped into my first leadership role, I needed to make the decisions. And actually I've realized now that being able to say, I don't know, as a leader and letting someone that reports into you educate you actually has a really big impact. And yeah. Bond, I don't know. They do. No, that's completely right, Gret. And I think it's one of the learnings of the kind of um, move fast and break things movement, which is um, actually you you need to learn to you need to learn to take the best out of failure. And uh, you know that was a lesson that we all learned at that time. But now we realise how important failure is, and actually it's your biggest learning opportunity. And I think that coupled with the rise of reverse mentoring in companies. Um, has made leaders feel more humble and more open to understanding different ways of doing things. And that helps them cope with the incredible transition that all businesses are going through right now, which is you're starting to do things completely differently from the way you did them before, in which case you just don't know. Um, and it's okay not to know. And actually, I think your team respects it more when you're like, I, I don't know about this. Let's all go off and find out about it and there's so much I mean it's funny because there's I mean uncertainty is really the only thing that's really out there we never really know what's going to happen but it's so much more apparent right now mm. especially in the business world that everything's uncertain but actually so many good things can happen good good change and evolution for the positive can happen from uncertainty yeah absolutely um so you're a founder um, and you're a shopkeeper now, you have your own, your own, um, 
your own, I'm going to call it a blog, but it's not really a blog, I guess. A platform, Brett. Let's platform. call it a platform. Platform. Thank you for <laughs> correcting my language. Um, can you just give me a little bit of, like, talk about your experience so far of that big transition from corporate life, working for other people to now being sort of the maker of your own destiny? Well, I've had to learn how to book my own taxis. <laughs> oh my God. I'm my own photocopying, go to the post office. Basically, all you have to do everything. Yes, I had a PA to do all of that stuff, but now I have to learn to do all of that stuff myself. It was so funny when we were doing events in Ibiza this summer for our brands. We had this big uh, dinner that we were throwing for this big designer and all these people that were coming, and we were literally doing everything ourselves I, at six o'clock in the evening in the intense sun sun of an August Ibiza evening I was out cutting flowers and doing the blooming flower arranging I was like oh my god you know from making the invitation to doing that kind of ring round to laying the table and decorating the table we were literally doing everything um so yeah I once you start working for yourself you realize how much stuff you have to do yourself the other thing that I had to learn was spreadsheets and actually, Daniela, my partner, and I both ended up in tears at one point <laughs> when we were learning how to do spreadsheets. We were journalists and fashion directors and how to do a spreadsheet. I remember one very dark evening, we were both on the Zoom together, literally crying because we didn't know how to do it. Anyway, we learned how to do it. And now we're so proud of the fact that we can do all of the spreadsheet stuff. So you learn, you know, as a founder, you learn, you have to do everything. You have to learn how to do new things and you have to take pleasure in that. Otherwise, it's just not fun. Um, but you get to march to your own beat. You know, you get to do the stuff that you think is right based on intense listening principles. Um, and there's nothing that I like more. Now, I mean, I write, I still write as a journalist for Financial Times and um, Jing Daily and, you know, various other international publications. And I, there I always write what my editors tell me they want to write. But on my It's Not Sustainable platform, I write what I think is really important based on the knowledge that I have gathered. And I do feel like I have this, you know, interesting um, take on all of this now because I come at it as a journalist I come as a as a brand strategist and I come at it as a, a retailer so I have three different filters on um, the fashion industry right now and the sustainability industry and you know you get very different viewpoint in all of those three sectors so putting them all together makes for quite an interesting experience so for those entrepreneurs just starting out, is there any advice that you would give them? Um, definitely know what your sustainability um, viewpoint is because there is a lot of regulation that's coming down the pipe. So actually you could really win in, a, in your sector if you are preparing for that regulation before everyone else. And also with all those other companies that are well-established and that you know, are going to have to reverse engineer all of their systems and processes to 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 respond to this regulation. And you can start it now and be. And is that regulation? Sorry to interrupt. Is that regulation already? I mean, it's being shared, so people could look at like, oh, this yes. is going to be, this is going to go through the pipeline. Or this yes, way. yes. Going. I mean, the EU is planning a big package, and things are changing in the states as well. Um, and even if you don't live in either of those two territories, you'll probably want to be selling in them. So get with it. Um, yeah, so I think that's an opportunity, actually. So that would be a big opportunity. And then the other thing I would say is um, keep going. <laughs> keep going. Because sometimes it's really easy to give up. <laughs> I, I completely agree with that. Sometimes you look at it and like, oh, my God, what have I done? And but if you keep going, it's like everything that you go through happens for a reason. And you can learn from it, even if you don't think it went exactly as you want it to. That's so thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. That, that is very, just keep at it. And you know what? You do get rewarded for that because the things that you think would never happen do start to happen. You know, totally. you yeah. do start to get customers. You do start to build an audience. You do start to make money. It's crazy, yeah. but it does happen. Yeah. And I remember people saying that to me and me thinking, really? And now it's happening to me. <laughs> Yay, as it should. Um, 
but you're obviously very busy. So I'm interested in how you actually stay well and look after yourself. And (gasps) cold water swimming, Gret. I'm a 50 year old cliche. (laughs) British cliche, British British female cliche. Uh, Cold water swimming, yoga, meditation when I remember. I, I often don't remember to do my meditation in the morning when I should do it or I don't find time to do it. So then I'll do it as I'm walking down the street. Do you know what I mean? You can just focus in on your breathing or you're sitting somewhere. You can just like have a moment where you're like in the moment. Try and do that. That's really helpful. Um, I do a lot of time with girlfriends. I spend a lot of time just having a good old bitch, a good old laugh, you know, just like I find that the most nourishing thing. I think also because when you have children, you stop you you stop seeing your friends so much because your free time is taken up with kids and then two of my children are teenagers now and i suddenly have more time for my friends and you know your children start to pass through and become more independent and they need less amusement or entertainment and you start to get bits of your time back and the great joy for me is that i can spend that with my friends who are wonderful that connection is important um, I'm at, I'm not at that stage right yet. It's coming. I'm at that stage where my children need more and more attention. Yeah. And so, yeah, but it's actively trying to seek out the the me time or the connection time with friends. I need to remember that. Yeah. Um, what's on your agenda for the rest of the year? We have a, not even a quarter left, but yeah. what are the big things happening for you? Um, well, I'm working um, on two very exciting brand strategy projects at the moment, which have just come in, uh, which need to be completed before Christmas, which is um, which are both exciting. Um, I'm going out to Ibiza next week for their first Alma Festival, where I am interviewing two phenomenal businesswomen. One is Dr. Amanda Parks, who is the chief innovation officer at Pangaria and an amazing chemist. And she knows everything about innovation in the material science sector. So uh, she's going to be a great keynote speaker and I get to interview her, which is very exciting. Um, And then um, I'm also speaking to Rosemary Ferguson, who you probably know from the nutritional world. She's coming out too. So she's going to be fun. And actually she's writing a book with a friend of mine at the moment, all, all about sensible practical nutrition for people who like to enjoy themselves so I'm very excited to find out a bit more about that from her because um Rose definitely knows how to enjoy herself um so I that Alma festival is going to be really fun next week it's a, a festival of the soul Alma meets soul in Spanish and there's some amazing people coming in Dave Asprey of Bulletproof Coffee fame is coming in from the west coast um, there's some amazing meditation experts um, and, you know, various um, Lily Cole, great activists. She's coming in. She's going to come and give her a talk in the Agora. And it's going to be one of those moments where we have 150 really like minded people with really interesting um, businesses, acti- activity and thought processes all coming together in one place. And I am excited to see what's going to come out of that. That sounds amazing. Good luck. Thank Enjoy you. Enjoy yourself there. And then it's the Christmas season. So come and get Christmas presents from Agora. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I need to hop on over. Yes, it's not far for you, Gret. No, and I can even be sustainable in my travel because I could drive <laughs> and then get on it's the ferry. Very, very good. I am now actively trying to, I'm being very considerate on my flights. Having been someone that had to, that traveled almost every week, I'm now looking back, I'm like, what is the, well, half of it was probably not essential. And so now how can I make sure that when I do travel, it is essential travel? Yeah, good Um, for you. Or go another, go another way, take a longer time to travel. Yeah. And also we just don't need to travel as much anymore now, do we? We can do everything from home, which is nice. I would love to get to Ibiza. So (laughs) I will find you there at some point. Amazing. Um, Tiff, thank you so much. Um, I've, feel like I've taken up so much of your time, but I also know I could continue talking and hearing all about what you're doing and the things that you're championing for a lot longer. 
Um, but thank you. Thank you. Thank no, you. great. I mean, you are doing an amazing thing with the conscious working. And um, I think you're part of a revolution around how people can learn to work and live better. So more power to you. And it's a pleasure to be on this podcast with you. Thanks, too. And for all of you out there, be here and be well. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you in the next episode. And by the way, if you like what you heard, then hit subscribe to receive all the future episodes. Better yet, if you're feeling inspired by what you just heard, then leave a review letting me know who else you might want to hear from on Conscious Leaders. To learn more about the show, about Conscious Working, or Tribe, our membership, head over to our website, consciousworking.co. Yes, it's just CO, so consciousworking.co. And for those of you that might be suffering burnout, we have a great free resource, the Beat Burnout Guide. It's a really simple assessment with tools for you to take action now. Check it out in the show notes so that you can access it immediately. See you in the next episode. Be here and be well.